Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 67. My name's Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview people from the worlds of TV, radio, writing, and today, all of those things. Armando Imanucci is a writer, TV director, radio producer, and satirist, although he kept saying during the show he doesn't consider himself a satirist, and we covered why he thinks that and why he knows people have that label for him but aren't quite sure why. It was really interesting to hear his take on that and his take on people's perception on him, which is a subject matter I love getting into with performers especially, but also the industry folk that I talk to. So industry folk, industry folk, let's go with it. We covered loads of subjects from moving radio shows to TV, how you can move TV shows to films, how you write for both a US and a UK audience, how to get stuff on the telly, his views on the difference between radio and TV and why one is more fun in different ways than the other, how he picked who he's going to collaborate with, how he found the right management, and just everything. We, we covered loads in this interview. He's best known for his work with Chris Morris on the day-to-day and on the hour as well as knowing me and knowing you and the Armando Imanucci show. I think this podcast would be great for anyone who wants to know the history behind some of their favorite TV and radio shows as well as how they were made, what production limitations they were, what artistic compromises had to be made due to budget restrictions or timing. Just anyone who wants to nerd out, but also any performers who really want to know the nitty gritty of why something was made in a certain way, if it was an artistic choice or a budget constraint, and also the behind the scenes, just what goes on with someone who keeps changing it up and keeps adjusting all the different subjects that he's working on and all the different areas that he explores and why he keeps changing it up and why he keeps trying to find new and exciting projects for himself or his audience for everyone and I really enjoyed his take on the fact that he kind of has to be aware of the fact that every couple of years there's a new audience watching TV who have no idea who he is so he has to really bring his A-game and it doesn't matter that he's famous to a certain number of people. Loved, I loved how grounded he was, it was amazing. There were a few points in this as there are in any interview you have with any guest where you might slip up and make a mistake and he said I've got to leave them in that was the rule we had in the room in his flat so I left them in but I also left in him telling me to leave them in because he didn't say I had to take that out as a result you'll hear where I slipped up it was only two or three times where I got some facts wrong but to be honest with you I'm fine with it I'm, I'm cool with it I've dealt with it I've, I've, I'm still dealing with it but that's not that's not your issue that's that's my that's my cross to bear 
As always, please do not forget to subscribe and join the Facebook group, which is called Ask the Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. Now, without any more delays, this is Armando Imanucci. I mean, I started in radio because I was a huge, huge fan of radio comedy. I mean, at school, I... Uh, and and this was this would be what in the seventies. There was lots of Radio Four comedy and Radio Two comedy, uh, things like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and you know old regulars like News Quiz, quote unquote panel shows, Weekending, which I always thought was the height of satirical sophistication at the time. Radioactive and that sort of thing. And I was just a huge fan. It was a show on called The Burkus Way. Um, which was a hilariously sort of surreal, I mean, just very imaginative, lots of wordplay, written by Andrew Marshall and David Renwick, who went on to write lots of, you know, One Foot in the Grave and classic two Ronnie sketches like the mastermind answering one question behind all the time, a lot of verbal tricks like that. And it was just just a joy. And um, and I used to, I used to uh, record it onto, you know, cassette tapes and, play them back and me and my brother were big radio comedy fans I shared a room uh, I, um, I'm sorry I haven't a clue all that so I just you know I loved radio comedy and at school I write comedy but I, I always thought I want to make radio comedy I, you know and I loved other comedy I loved you know, Monty Python and Woody Allen films and, and you know I watched TV stuff but it was radio was the real thing I was absolutely obsessed with and and, and so when I was at university, I just made a tape of live stuff I did, and I sent it to Radio Scotland, who were looking for some new comic talent, and also some new music presenting talent. Uh, and I got I got the job as a kind of music presenter, and I was the world's uncoolest music presenter. But I was allowed to write my own funnies, and that was great because Radio Scotland in Glasgow was like it was a huge building because it was like. It was like the national radio station. It was like a local, it was like a regional station, but on a national level. So it had endless studios. It had a sports department, a news department, a features department. So it met, and a gram library, a sound effects library, any music I could, you know, dig up from the, from the library. So I was able to go and write sketches, but also get other people in to perform them, use the studios, use all the props, the sound effects, the music, work with editors who'd worked on sports shows and and that's where i picked up the sort of technique of mimicking other styles because you know if you wanted to do like a you know a football commentary or a horse racing commentary you could actually dig out the special mic that they use the sort of close the close lip mic that they use that covers the you know so you could end up uh, you could end up doing that you know and and it was great and 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 that's when i learned an awful lot of the um just the techniques of directing actors and also producing, you know, cutting material, sitting there with a, in those days, with a razor blade and, and trying to graph and actually physically cutting the tape and splicing it together and stuff. And then I just applied, a, the job came up in BBC Radio Comedy in London and I applied. And it was about the, the one very Machiavellian, very, very Machiavellian cynical thing I ever did was I said to Radio Scotland, I think I could be better for you if you paid for me to go down to London and shadow <laughs> BBC Radio 4 comedy for a week. And they said, that sounds an excellent idea. Wow. You paid for me to go down and follow Radio 4 producers around for a week. And I then came back up and then a job came up in Radio 4 and I applied for it. And because I 
kind of had come down and shadowed them. They kind of knew who I was and I was able to also show them my pieces and stuff. You don't yeah. ask, you don't get. You don't ask, you don't get. And, you know, that. so I basically siphoned off Scottish license fee payers money <laughs> in order to, you know, better my... Uh, myself, better myself. I am basically a crook. Well, it's, it's like an arts council grant they didn't know they were giving you. Well, yeah, except they, they knew, they did know, they did know, because I asked for it. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't, I didn't sit down in my bedroom and think, this is what I'll do, this is how I'll stiff them. Yeah, you're not but, like methodical. No, no. <laughs> but fundamentally, that's what happened. And, uh, and, and, and so I then started off in BBC Radio, Radio 4 and Radio 2, making the shows that I actually grew up liking, like the news quiz and weekending and quote-unquote. And, and uh, actually, it was quite bleak. It was bleak because then I realised that I... I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to do those shows. I wanted to do something new. Didn't working on the shows that you loved as a kid yeah. make them different for you? Or like, did it ever ruin the memory of it for you? It kind of did. And in fact, I remember being asked if I wanted to produce uh, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. And I said no, because I love it so much. I really don't want to go anywhere near it. Do you know what I mean? I, would, I want to stay a listener to that show without any memory of how it's put together, the things that don't work and all that. But it was, yeah, it was, I, I, I mean, that's, I mean, it was a great learning experience. I mean, to do something like the news quiz, for you, you end up reading every newspaper every day and getting an overview of how news works and how the media works. And, and then, you know, the, the, we had just one writer of the script at the time and he was always very late. So I'd end up writing the script until he came in. So that was good experience. And it was Barry Took who was the presenter uh, at the time, and 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 it was good, to, you know, to get you know to, to to mix with the likes of Ian Hislop and Peter Cook we had on, and um, that that was all fun. It was a great experience. So don't get me wrong, but I sort of felt I don't want to go down in history as the thirteenth producer of the News Quiz and the twenty eighth of Week Ending. I kind of want to yeah, no do something to else. The, no yeah. one wants to be the twentieth president of the United States. You know, they want to be the first. I don't know who that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably turned out to be something like Abraham Lincoln yeah. or something. Like what did he do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, so it was a great. But what was great about the radio comedy department was you were mixing. You were literally this corridor of just different producers of different rooms, mm. and lots of writers mixing around. And you just you get to know other writers. You can bring in writers that you know. It was the same time I knew Lee and Herring from university, and they were. They were about three or four years younger than me, so they were just beginning to sort of emerge as writers. So when I did Weekending, I basically gave them 50% of the show to write, and it was really good fun. I mean, it, it wasn't in any way topical. I remember it was there was one week where the Birmingham... Is it the Birmingham Six? Birmingham Six? I, I can remember. I can never remember that, that's the, the number. numbers yeah, of that's these. The number. Um, <laughs> miscarriages of justice. People... Were, I think it was the Birmingham Six. Birmingham Six. It was the week they were released. Yeah. So Lee and Herring came up with the all new adventures of the Birmingham Six, which was just like a cartoon series with these six people in a van, kind of um, <laughs> miscorrecting uh, justice. And um, it was really funny. But there were lots of letters afterwards saying, "I don't really think you've homed in on the satirical importance <laughs> of this event." But I suppose at that point you. They and you, I mean, that was the first time you worked together with them? Or was that? Well, sort of professionally. I mean, I knew them very well yeah. from university because we used to do these sort of Sunday night 
new material mm. evenings every every fortnight, and then they did the Oxford Review. I think the year after I did, so so I kind of knew them, but it was the first time actually, I suppose, working directly with them. And you, but you're all like learning satire a bit because because like when people think of you yeah. now, they obviously think of your vast body of work as a satirist, but obviously you had to start somewhere. So obviously, yeah. when, when when how old are you when this was happening then? Oh, I'd be about what twenty. 24. So this is so this yeah. is when you were just learning it anyway. Yeah. So so I guess getting that level of feedback was yeah. obviously quite useful in the sense of learning. Yeah, but also it's I mean there's lots of great things about radio. One is you know the fast turnaround thing. The, the you know you write it that day, you record it that day, and it goes out that night or mm. or the next. Night. There was and and I remember doing a very early news quiz where it was all put on a tape, and you only had one copy of it. And it goes out at 6.30 and it was five to six and I had finished it. And I had to, you have to take it to the, it's probably all different now at the time. You take it to the gramophone library and it's shut. And there's just a sign saying, if we're closed, just drop it through this letterbox. So you drop, <laughs> you drop this tape, you know, this spool of tape through a letterbox. You just see it thud onto the floor thinking, well, I, I don't know what happens now. It's meant to go out in 35 minutes and you'd go home and yeah, sure enough, someone had come in and, <laughs> found it and put it on. Yeah, so there's the immediacy of it, which yeah. is great. There's really something exciting about that, writing something and then hearing it going out. But the other thing about radio is, you know, it teaches you economy. It teaches you, you know, every word is important. If you faff around and just write screeds and screeds and screeds of stuff, you know, just by looking at it, that it's too long and it forces you to pare it down. And also because that's all you do have. You don't, you can't get round it with a colourful costume or a, you know, whatever. Um, it really forces you to think about. Yeah, I mean that, that's why I like podcasting. Is that yeah. I have to I have to sit down and I listen to this. I'll be listening to this like three or four times over just to make sure that mm. everything in it I think is worth it being in it. And and I'm saying that you're waffling. Or I'm just saying no, but, but yeah. it's, it's just a case of editing. But just to help you along, I will waffle every now and then just to kind of keep you on your toes. I might add in clap breaks. <laughs> <laughs> but I know what you mean. and I, I, I read a thing about how you did uh, I don't want to get this wrong 17th century religious language yeah I a did subject. a PhD I mean that's because I so I, I was at university for six years I did undergraduate yeah. I stayed on and did research and it was it was in my postgraduate years that actually that's when I wrote lots of comedy and that's when Lean Herring were around and Al Murray um, as a sort of undergraduates and David Schneider I performed with did, well. did you find because obviously apparently you, you left that but I mean did you yeah. find that learning those languages helped with writing with, like colourful and vivid stuff in, in satire? Uh, no, I suppose it was more maybe doing an English degree, you know, when you analyse language in detail and you look at good writing and you try and work out what makes it work. I suppose there is that subliminally that you pick up that interest in in seeing how something can work verbally. And, and also you, you pick up different styles, so, so therefore different voices. And, and you know, and but I always loved people who themselves were very good at analyzing. I mean, George Orwell writing about political language is great. It's fantastic. It's worth, he did a whole essay on politics in the English language that is still absolutely relevant today. It's just about how you can abuse metaphor, how you can say one thing but mean the other, how you can say nothing but make it sound impressive and all that. 
Um, so I suppose that was useful, but that's not, I mean, I didn't do that as a degree thinking this will get me into comedy. It's just, of course. you know, I was always a, a keen reader and I just loved reading. And right up till, you know, A-levels, I, I didn't know whether it was going to be arts or sciences. I, I did maths as well as English. And, and, and I, you know, I, I didn't really, and it was just, I think because in the end I thought, but I love this. I love reading. I love I love talking about literature and I love talking, looking at writing. So that's that's the way to go. Yeah, and I, I, I read a really good st- uh, quote that said that you are the, the sum of the... So you're the average of the five people you hang out with most. Right. And so I suppose that also <laughs> comes into the content you take in. Because like you said, when you were reading all the papers... Who said that? I can't remember. Well, that's a very good It's one. a really good quote, yeah, though, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, made yeah. me pick who I hang out with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more specific. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. But it's, it's true, because like, if you're reading all I the papers... I usually hang out with... I hang out with a serial killer, um, a nun... And uh, <laughs> it's not a, a labrador. <laughs> so I should I should say there's, there's one other person in the room, and I did worry worry because yes, my back is to you right now when he yeah. said serial killer. And I, I thought he was with you. Yeah. I, <laughs> I scuttled out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> He's my assistant. Assistant. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, that's that's not a accomplice. That's just definitely assistant. Assistant. Okay. Yes. Fair yes. Enough. No, we don't socialize. <laughs> I've no, I know nothing about him. <laughs> he could be doing anything in his free time. Be, I don't know. I don't know what he gets up to. Okay, outside this office, uh, or in this <laughs> office, apparently. Um, well, because because I remember you. Well, I don't remember. I, I wasn't I wasn't around at that time. But yeah. uh, you you obviously moved uh, on the hour to TV, and yes. it became the day to day. Yes. And given that you loved radio that much, yeah. and you hadn't really had much experience or any, as I understand, it, experience in TV at that point, how was transitioning that? Because obviously it's, it's got to become visual now and everything. Yeah, I mean, that was scary. And, and myself and Chris Morris, we were in exactly the same boat. I mean, Chris, similar sort of trajectory in that he was a big radio lover. He was a radio, live radio presenter, fooled around with radio voices and, and made very rich audio comedy. So for both of us, it was uh, a huge um, uh, and slightly frightening uh, and daunting task but I think that's why I mean what what it meant was doing the day-to-day meant that not only were we transferring the show to television but we were we we were we were doing a kind of parody of television news while at the same time working out how to make television and that was probably quite good because it meant you know we had an idea in our head about what what we wanted to see and we weren't so ingrained in well this is the way you make it so you should make it like this we were kind of slightly naive about how you make it so I remember, for example, wanting to do the, the CNN type stuff as if down a satellite and just thinking, well, the best way to make it is a certain type of camera, but then turn all the color up and then just degrade it afterwards, just dump it onto a videotape and then dump it onto another videotape and keep dumping it until it degrades. And I remember in the, you know, the post-production where they have all this highly expensive, sophisticated equipment, they were trying to get us to just use that equipment to, to give it the look. And, and in the end, the cheap, just dumping it onto cheap nasty videotape that we'd sort of slightly spooled out and trodden on and looped spooled back in was was, you know and we wouldn't have done that if we'd actually grown up kind of learning tv techniques i suppose 
Yeah, I, I do a vlog, and in my yeah. vlog, I tried to, I wanted to make one of the shots that I really spent ages on look a bit worn, and so uh, I exported it, and then yeah. I exported it, and it's basically the same yeah. thing, because I thought it would be a digital thing, so it wouldn't grape, it does, because it obviously compresses and yeah, moves yeah, it yeah. around and stuff, yeah. so that's, yeah, it's really, yeah. nothing changes, it's just no, no, it's just, and it's sort of thing, that's sort of obvious, really, Yeah. Uh, so do it, and like, if we wanted to do a 1950s style thing, we would go to the National Museum of Television, Bradford, and borrow one of their cameras from the 1950s TV cameras and just film with that because that's how you're going to achieve the loop. I suppose because you were working on the BBC, you had yeah. sort of not more licensing, but or maybe you didn't have more you licensing. You did at the time. And also okay. a lot of stuff with the BBC, although we were working for an indie with Talkback, a lot of the BBC television centre was very... There was a lot of stuff in-house all bunched together. So there was, you know, recording studios, TV studios, post-production suites, other sets costume you know so it was like a big playpen where you could just pull stuff out and muck about with it it doesn't sound like you wanted it to go to tv though given the love for radio or or was that the no there was a reluctance not a reluctance there was just a concern but we thought you know well let's go for it but what we wanted to make sure was that it was just as good and that we worked just as hard on it so we thought what we won't do is use any of the material from the radio show we'll start again and we'll spend a lot of time I mean Chris and I went on a radio news training course that the BBC arranged for us and that was really interesting because it was actually we actually learned how to put together television news bulletins and it was at the time of the Bosnian the war of Bosnia and they said look here's you know 40 minutes of unedited rushes of uh, street in Bosnia some instant you've got three hours to cut that together into a package one minute long with these three facts and you worked on it and and what we both realized was that we didn't have any pictures that went with one of the three facts so what you do is the clock is ticking time's running out you just get rid of the fact so in the end you've got stuff to illustrate two facts and the third fact didn't get mentioned because there were no pictures and that was a real learning curve in 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 appreciating how television is picture led it's picture driven and also what you see on television is an edit you know the news isn't a neutral unfiltered it's it's somebody's editorial decision as to what to put as the first topic second third and how they will cut it together i, I was chatting to jonathan pye uh, for this actually oh, yeah. a little while ago you, yeah you know uh, the satirist the, the news reporter he um we were talking about how i get really annoyed when people forget that newspapers are there to sell papers yeah. they don't actually have an obligation to inform you yeah do you know what i mean well that's the thing i picked up doing the news quiz because then i you know i would read every newspaper and yeah. and, and as a result you then can't read a single newspaper again no. because you know it's not the whole picture and, yeah. and to this day we still get at home we still get the guardian and the telegraph uh, uh, and it's quite funny because the telegraph <laughs> is very good comparing the two because the front pages the telegraph always somehow managed to contrive to have a picture of a of a young pretty woman on the front page even though under the photograph it says you know sister of the man who died yesterday yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas the guardian usually has like a dead animal or coal or something yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> or jeremy corbyn looking uh depressed and it's interesting just comparing to but you kind of read read them knowing that you're not getting the whole picture actually what you're getting is and that's not to say they're corrupt it's, it's just to say it's just it's just one group of people's take on uh, on the, the, what they see as the priorities of the day and also what will drive their sort of audience to them that day yeah yeah i mean it's it's like saying oh i don't do enough jokes on on cats because you know i i, I do enough on dogs why don't i do enough on cats i need to keep it even and it's like no, no. i'm only interested in talking about 
dogs. Yes. So as a result, I would do jokes yes. about dogs. Dogs are inherently more interesting. They are way better than cats. Yeah, no, cats are, cats are kind of... Fat. I mean, dogs are stupid, but in a sort of amiable way. But they're useful when they want to be. If yeah. you train them, cats you can't train. No, no, no. Cats are, I don't know, they're up to something. Cats are dogs that don't give a fuck. <laughs> cats are... Like cats are the worst. I used to have one, not my choice, but uh, yeah, long story. You had a full-time job essentially as uh, As a radio producer. producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose now are you more freelance than... than Yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, I kind of left after about a year and a half, I left as a staff producer. I I got on the first rung of BBC management. I became uh, the script editor, which uh, it was the department script. So basically the person in charge of looking for new ideas, new material, you know, nurturing writers developing ideas and so on. But it then meant I had to go to kind of interdepartmental BBC management meetings. I remember the time I got the job and Jonathan James Moore, who was the head of the department, sort of congratulated me and he sort of shook my hand. And as he shook my hand, four other people in suits kind of emerged. I don't know where they were hiding, but they kind of emerged and, and opened up some whiskey and we had a drink and I suddenly felt like I'd aged 25 years and put on a lot of weight. And, you know, I just suddenly, I felt uneasy and I didn't last I lasted about three months in that job because I just thought this is not for me I want to be doing my own things I I don't want to be spending a lot of time saying mostly no to other writers about their ideas Uh, and I don't want to be going to BBC meetings defending programs that I think are a bit crap and being frustrated that things that I've seen that I think are really good are not getting on I I just couldn't really I couldn't really cope and it was about the time that uh, On the Hour was going out and Knowing Me Knowing You was going out so we knew you know there were approaches from television to go and make it on television taking forward the analogy of the papers and how they yeah. they pick and choose what they do yeah. obviously TV channels are the same except for in a visual medium yeah. so I suppose my question would be if you were making if you wanted to just make stuff that you wanted to make that yes. was good how did you know that it was going to be not TV worthy but they were going to want to even put it on other than the stuff that had already been commissioned so we're talking about future projects well you do, the, the danger is you think like that you know I, I mean I remember going freelance and thinking if I think too hard about this I'll be very scared because I'm <laughs> other than this TV pilot that I've been asked to do I've no idea what the future holds but I knew there was interest in the day-to-day and in knowing me knowing you with Alan Partridge so I knew well I've got two TV pilots one of them might be lucky and get a TV show but yeah, you do make that leap thinking I'm leaving behind the security, the, you know, the nine to five nature, five days a week, you know, the the, the BBC pension, all that. I'm leaving all that behind. But, you know, I, I would be I mean, what, what, 25, 26 then? Oh no, maybe a bit, 26, 27. You know, I think at that age, you still, you, you, you I'm speaking for myself, but I was relatively optimistic. I, I, had, a, I had enough belief that I could come up with something but I had no idea how it would go or you know where it would take me to so there wasn't there wasn't a grand plan really other than making those shows and seeing what happened did you so let's let's yeah. zoom back to when you're 26 27 yeah yeah you've left your job yes you're going freelance yes you've obviously got some stuff what you're working on in the pipeline yeah but day one freelance yeah did you have a part-time job to go to or is it just immediately no like, i mean it was like ah, what's going and, on? And, and and not only that but actually i think it was the bbc asked me to make the day-to-day and after a while we turned them down because we just thought well I know yes they wanted to make the day-to-day but I couldn't produce it a TV producer would produce it and Chris and I just thought that's not no we need to be in charge so Sona and then Hattrick approached us and said we would like to make the day-to-day and we turned them down as well (laughs) 
which was which was the scary bit. And you know, hat trick are great, and you know they they were all great. Uh, Jimmy Bolivar was very welcoming. We just thought it wasn't the right fit. I mean, we must have been real quite arrogant bastards at the time because we were we were kind of looking at all these kind of you know well established comedy people and going no. <laughs> um, and, and and but I remember when we turned hat trick down, that's where I was thinking, what the hell are we doing? Because you know we've got to do this. It'd be a shame if it never got made. Unfortunately, that was right. And then Talkback came along and said, look, we'd like you like to make the day today. And they were really, Peter Fincher at Talkback was really hands, you know, really protective, able to argue for all the resources that we needed and the time linked us up with um, Alan Yentop, who was the controller of BBC Two at the time, who, you know, loved the idea and was, again, was very supportive. So, so instantly we felt, okay, we've sort of found the right home and the right group of people. But again, because we wanted to make it right, we took a long time time making it long time making the pilot because we wanted to get it absolutely right and then once we made the pilot it's then another you know it takes another year to then make this show because we were making it very slowly and very carefully did you, you know. did you have sorry who did, did you go over in the end did you say talk back talk back so did you have talk back in mind when you first thought we might do this for tv or was it a case of no. the way they approached you or yeah they approached us okay uh, I, I no we i left the bbc thinking we're going to make the day today for the bbc right and then <laughs> Then I let, and then then we turned the VC down. So it's so it was. It, 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 it's I mean, it, and it's you know I, I I'm not sure now how we managed to kind of get through that without going mad. But I'm glad we did because it, it, it kind of meant from early on we kind of established among the you know TV fraternity that we wanted to be left alone and left in charge and you know do do it our way and and I think that was quite good I think it paid off in the end because it meant that right from day one we kind of said it's either this or not at all see that's that's really I mean I've not had the same conversations as you in that respect but I've done I've done things where I've said because because it's not going to be done the way I want yeah. it to be done yeah I'm going to walk away yeah. or I'm going to go and do it especially now do there's it. the internet I can do yeah, it myself exactly. but I suppose you didn't have that but I, but I always in every project I go into I kind of work out what the bottom line is you know and as it gets bigger and if you're doing a film you know there's more people involved and it's someone else's money and you feel responsible for that Mm. you can't you know just you know be very lax about it and you know spend it stupidly you you know it, I am aware there's a responsibility but I always kind of work out you know editorially what's my bottom line and therefore if it if for some reason we cross that line in my head I've I, I've walked away at that point I've said to myself that's when I can no longer do that because it's it's gone below the the, the, the point where I think this is how it should be made and 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 funny enough that if you've worked it out and you know you're absolutely ready to do it it rarely happens do you know what I mean? I think because you kind of give that vibe of you know roughly what how you want to go about it, and 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 also you know more often than not people are supportive. You know they 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 do actually want to make good stuff on the whole. And fine, you know I've had fun at you know TV executives' expense coming up with silly ideas and interference and stuff. But fundamentally, I think most people in the industry just want to make good stuff, really. So they are, you know, fundamentally, you know, they are supportive. Yeah, I mean, when I spoke to Ian Coyle at Dave, and and his yeah, yeah, yeah. his motive, his his drive was, yeah. I really want good stuff. The problem is sometimes I can't sell an advert on it, yeah. and and Dave is a commercial station, yeah. so I need to sell an advert, and I, and I get that, and I and I totally respect that because. Yeah. When you think about it like that, you're like, oh, he's not the dickhead commissioner who doesn't want to put my stuff on. And that's why you get, you know, a whole succession of commissioners who do it for two or three years and then leave to Mm -hmm. become producers because they've, they've had to 
you know, they want to do good stuff, but they've seen the good stuff or the quality affected by the pressures from ratings or adverts or whatever, slots, schedule and other. And there's only so many years you can, you know, manage that. And then after a while, you just want to go out and be creative yourself. It's, it's interesting because if you look at the people you've named so far, so if yeah. we look at like Chris Morris and Stuart Lee and, and Richard yeah. Herring, all of them now still do that. Yeah. Where they, I mean, especially yeah. with Herring, with all of his online stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuart Lee, who, who shunned a, a management, one of the biggest managements yeah. to just do his thing. So so it's, um, I think it's getting into that habit and routine early of, yeah. of standing your ground. Even even if, like you said, you might have come off a bit of an arrogant 20-something, mm-hmm. but I suppose it's worked out quite well. I mean, I'm sure there's hundreds it hasn't done, but... Yeah, I mean, and I wouldn't encourage people starting to go around being very arrogant <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just having a sort of an inner resolve as to what, yeah 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 the secret is to be really arrogant and uh, that will get you really far that's a sound bite i'm going to use yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, i think it's just being a bit sure of like what it is you want to do now that doesn't mean to say that if you do that you will end up being successful because you know chances are people go well he's been difficult no yeah. then yeah, we're not yeah, going to yeah. do it you know and that's you know that's the kind of risk you take but you're right with the, being able to do produce stuff yourself and put it online means that you know well it, it means you don't have to wait for the call in terms of writing something or making something because you can just go ahead and make it and I think the more you write the more you make the better you get and therefore you know the quality goes up and then you have a back catalogue of stuff that you can then do something with if you want to take it any further yeah because I mean it's all well and good sitting around and just going oh they never ring but it's like yeah, yeah, why yeah. would they ring yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean I mean the real dilemma is how do you get paid how do you make money out of it that's the real is in online content yeah, yeah yeah I think I think if you I mean I'm an avid believer in this I mean the, mm. I was telling you about my book before before we started mm. recording I mean I believe if you build enough of a connection yeah. with your audience they'll they'll want to make, help you keep making the thing they like yeah. so I, I firmly believe if you do a good enough job someone yeah. in your audience will give you something yeah. towards and, and obviously as that builds I mean there's a website do you know patreon.com Patre- patreon patreon no. it's, it's a website where if so if you wanted to sponsor like a podcast for example oh, you could yeah, say yeah. a pound an yeah, episode or whatever and if you get enough of those yeah. it's it's easy to do so i suppose there are there are models that are building that are that are meant to be making it easier for you know the online and i've always been a believer that you know good stuff will be found out you know good mm. stuff you know because word of mouth and oh, yeah. you know it, it's uh, it tops the way yeah yeah you mentioned that you were writing with chris morris to to get the um the, to transfer for the on the hour to to the day-to-day essentially yeah. and what, what was that like did you did you bring ideas together did you work separately yeah, um, it was a bit of both. I mean, for On The Hour, we would sit down, and it was a whole team of writers, but Chris and I would sit down together and, and work out the shape of a show, what the theme would be, what topics would come up. I'd be having separate conversations on some of, with the cast in terms of, and the other writers in terms of some of the inserts. But if we decided to be like a big theme like this week, we're going to cover, you know, an earthquake. Chris would then go off and just make his stuff all related to that and then bring it in. And then we'd work out how those bits would slot in with the rest of the show. And then together we'd sit down and weave a kind of structure to that program and then spend a day in the studio with all all the separate bits ready to be played in and, and just spend the day recording his, presenter his links so it was a very sort of organic 
approach really and that was more I mean you have to slightly formalise it when you go into television because suddenly everything you know, just takes longer and needs more resources so costs more costs more <laughs> yeah. so you have to kind of you know flesh it out a little bit more in advance and try and work out whether we are going to make that or of which of these seven ideas are the ones we're going to go with before we you know go off and commit so there was just, working that out took a little while but fundamentally it was in the end it was the same sort of relationship you know Chris would do his stuff I'd be around to 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 watch it you know whereas when he was doing his radio stuff he could just break into Danny Baker's studio at night and record his stuff and you know radio's easy to do that it's very you know you can do it on your own whereas television involves so many other people so I'd be around to kind of watch Chris do his stuff and then he'd come and watch if I was out with the rest of the team doing you know backstreet dentists or whatever medieval hospital or you know the American news reports and, and so on and then you know in the edit we'd kind of the same thing we you know and then we do these big long days in the studio we'd build the studio which again would be much more elaborate because you know again in a radio studio it's just microphones mm. whereas a tv studio you know where is alan partridge in relation to chris morris and where is the business desk and what happens when a war breaks out how do we move the desk how do we turn the set into a war set and things like that which were enormous fun to work out mm. um, but take more time so it's more you know it's almost like i imagine doing an animation you know you're working mm. out all the mechanics of it in advance before you actually go in and do it yeah uh, you, uh, we're talking about rob popper as well yeah 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 he, he really taught me so like i said uh, the, the vlog for me the end point is i want to make a sitcom and i want to learn yes. how to film it myself yes. so i thought i'd learn this way and yeah. something he taught me was first of all lighting moving those around are a pain yes so, so schedule out your shots and yes. having a shot list for a vlog, it seems a bit over the top, but it makes your yeah. life a billion times easier. Well, the more you plan, and that doesn't mean to say you have to make the whole thing robotic, but oh, just no, the no. more you plan, the more you can iron out stuff in advance. Mm. I mean, something like The Thick of It was born out of the fact we had very little money and I wanted to shoot quite a lot. Mm. So we found a set of disused offices and Jamie Kearney, the, uh, the, the DOP, I said, can we just light it generally? Just write the whole thing so we don't have to stop to relight and that way we can run from one office to another and follow them on the cameras and not really have to stop to kind of reposition everything and so on but but you can only do that you get a certain look mm. doing it like that which doesn't apply you couldn't do like you know a glossy costume drama like that because you know it, it just won't yeah, work just you know work. and you've got to have like yeah i mean as the day moves on as the day moves time. on and you know yeah. and the horses get tired you know bloody horses ah oh, horses I don't can't remember the last time you've worked with a horse, so I suppose <laughs> we had a horse in the first episode of Knowing Me Knowing You on telly, right? And, and and it and it did shit on the stage, so we <laughs> kept that bit in as you do horses. I did racist police horses in Channel Four show. Yeah, I like horses. You like horses. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounded like you were very anti-horse but pro-dog so far. This no, no. <laughs> <laughs> one day all television will be just horses. Be, yeah. yeah, but that's when the meteor strikes and we all die. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the yeah, network. and the horses yeah. rise up. Yeah, and, yeah. That's, that's the that's the dream. Yeah, nightmare. I mean, you're known for your satire. In, in, in as a, as a general, as right. if someone were to say, "What are you?" Most people yeah. would go satire. But obviously, you did the uh, Amanda Minucci show. Yes. It was like one of your first things. Yes. And on episode one of that, uh, yes. and it was a bit more personal. That yes. And on, on the first episode, you talked about uh, faking it and feeling like you were muddling yeah. through. And even even as we're talking now, you're saying things that reflect that. Like when you said that you uh, when you were in 23, 24, 25, and you were sort of like, "What am I doing?" 
doing? I'm leaving a great job. And, and uh, given given you've got a lot of accolades now, and given that you essentially have an audience who, uh, for better or for worse, maybe maybe a sycophant or member of the audience, uh, a section of the audience that would just follow you anyway, mm-hmm. do you still feel like you're muddling, or do you still feel like you? you, you... I still no, I still feel that one day I'll be found out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's more to do with that makes you sound like you and him are doing something <laughs> again. Like... I, I'm just kidding. no, I'm more I'm kind of more confident about the stuff that I'm doing. Whereas when I started, I just thought, what what am I? Is this funny? I I don't. I think it's funny, and they think it's funny. It's the people I'm working with, but is it funny or 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 do they do? They, I I always worried that people I was working with thought I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, <laughs> and you know, and and I, I think everyone has that. I think I've gone kind of gone through that and accepted. I kind of probably probably do know what I'm doing but with every new project I think but this could be the one that's completely shit and I won't really (laughs) and I won't really know that until we make it which is scary so I still get you know not petrified but I, I I still get that you know there's that uncertainty but I'd rather have that than be making the same thing again and again and again that's the thing but but there is always that okay well I'll make this but I I this this could be awful this could be people might just go, oh my god, what what was he doing? And actually, in retrospect, all his other stuff is shit too. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that. You know, a kind of kind of chain rea- a chain critical reaction <laughs> that obliterates all your previous work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you, do you think you're addicted to the cycle of that in a way? Because obviously, it, it drives you to make the next thing. Well, I have a kind of slightly fidgety you know if I've done something even though if I've enjoyed it I the next thing I want to be slightly the opposite of what I've just done so you know if I've just spent five years doing an American TV show you know about uh, American politics so after that I went to do a European movie <laughs> that had has some American actors in it but I didn't have to deal you know I didn't have to commute to the east coast or the west coast of America in order to do it and that was, it's just a sort of reaction to the last thing, just to kind of keep, I just want to keep being interested. So I have to, I, I have to generate stuff that will interest me. And that invariably means something a little bit different from the last thing I did. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think everyone feels like they're faking it. I'm not faking it, but I suppose... Yeah. I mean, I, I have a joke in Manusha about how uh, if, I, if I'm in a conversation with too many people, I sometimes worry that the adults are going to realise they're talking to me. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, David Schneider and I always call them the tall people. The tall people. The tall people. The people who, who you always think are, even though they're younger than you, yeah, yeah. feel a bit older and a bit yeah, more yeah, responsible. Yeah. I, I think it's because they've got the jargon down. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? The I office jargon. Kind of act grown up. And I never feel mm. grown up, even though I'm, no. you know, 52 now. I still, <laughs> I still feel like... I, you know, I'm kind of still a student, really. Yeah, and I, th- I think, I think, uh, as a stand, I do stand up mainly, but as a stand up, you you live a perpetual student existence. Well, yeah, it's that, but also it's that thing of it's probably why I left the BBC after three months because this part of me just felt I can't do this. I can't be at a desk in an office for the next twenty five years. I don't want to know what I'm doing in five years' time. That's the thing. I don't have a. That was the next question. Back. I was going to okay, ask what go you're going to do in five years. What am I going to do in five years? Yeah. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> Because I hate that, you know, sort of being boxed in. Mm. 
you know and it was um and the most difficult thing i've done has been this has been veep for that very reason because you know in america it's like you do a show if it gets on a big network and hbo are fantastic you're really expected to make it for eight or nine years milk it for all it's worth and then retire that's the dream but i just didn't i just thought after four years of it i felt i've that's enough stop it stop it now Someone else can do it. So I, you know, really like the show. Fantastic cast and great project and HBO fantastic. Someone else can do it, but I, I, I might scream if I make any more. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the feeling. I've, yeah. I've uh, I can say this now because by the time it comes out, my tour will be over. But okay. I've done this show now for nearly two years. Well, that's I've enough. I've done it over a hundred times. That's enough. And I, I'm, I'm having to every night now go home and rehearse it yeah. because I've forgotten it because I've had a month and a half off of it. Yeah. And I'm bored of it. Yeah. But I love it and I'm really proud of it. But I'm just like, and I, I just want to get started on the next one. And it's That's just, why I like when Stuart does a, a TV series. He then does a show in which he, he performs all that material for the very last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, one yeah. big show. Which is, uh, I mean, it's better life as well, yeah. which, is, which is part of the, the beauty of it. I mean, what, what for you is the major difference between a writing room in London, or not London, mm. is a very London-centric industry, but in, in the UK and in America? I don't know, because, you know, Veep was a London writing room. It oh, was, was like, yeah, okay. we, we had, uh, we were over in, uh, we had an office over in Soho, and it was, all the, it was all the writers that I'd worked on the thick of it with, you know, a few writers I hadn't worked with with before I came on board but all UK writers UK directors we edit it in the UK the cast came over to London every now and then to rehearse so it was very much a, a British based production and then we'd go out to Baltimore to actually film it for three or four months but it was so actually I don't know what a US writing room is like I think there is now one on season five that's just gone and, and season six because it's a US showrunner who's taken over he lives in LA the cast all live in LA so the whole production's moved to LA makes more sense because that's where they all live so it's an American you know writing room but I've no I have no experience of that I've no idea how it works a lot of political stand-up in particular as in like uh, live stand-up yeah. um, send, I, mean, I don't know how often you get to, to see live it's been ages actually it's just again you, you know yeah. doing my American show and stuff when I when I was ever here I was so jet lagged or in an edit that the the idea of going out at night to see more comedy <laughs> was just I would relax just by watching depressing stuff you know oh then you'd like my comedy <laughs> <laughs> or just staring at a wall you know or maybe, yeah. maybe it's a cat yeah they are yeah. depressing yeah. yeah well I was going to ask about because um, a lot of comedy I'm not saying yeah. all but a lot of it is around mocking the look of a, of a politician or even a, yeah, or yeah, even a pun really, yeah, on yeah. on the kind of you know their name or something like that. Yeah. And sorry, I was, I've just interrupted you. What were you no, going to no. say? No, no. Well, I've always felt you know when we did things like Friday Night Armistice, it was I would try to avoid. He's funny. He talks like this and more. He said that, but he did this. That doesn't make any sense. Or you know, here's her argument, and yet this is what she did last week. You know, looking at argument or looking at what people do. Also, I just I, I'm, I mean, I hate labels and labeling anyway. So yeah, it used to really annoy me that people made fun of John Prescott because of his sort of mangled sentences. And I just thought, well, that's not, you know, that's not important. What's important is like, why did he agree to the Iraq war when clearly he was against it? You know, that's more important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I suppose what's been really interesting for me to watch, um, especially as, uh, so for example, um, oh, I can't remember, uh, Cameron with the pig's head issue. Yes. And Charlie Booker wrote an episode of Black Mirror yeah. to do with it. And obviously there's been parallels in loads of things yes. from a while ago. I mean... I, 
I've tried to write political stand-up, but I find it hard because it feels like they're doing it for well, me. Well, we're being so, we're like, sort of being outpaced, and I think it is. There's now a whole generation of politicians who've grown up watching political satire, yeah. and, and you know, as people like Malcolm Tucker, I've always regarded as just a bastard, and yet in politics they think he's the sort of the the, the gold standard that you know, as a political fixer, you should be aiming for, and that that's depressing. But also, I think you know, politicians have become more media savvy and you know recruit writers to write them jokes or things to go viral or things that might become a meme you know they're they're, they're sort of hyper conscious of that media filter that everything goes through and therefore it's no surprise that the things they end up doing seem to echo the the fiction that Mm. other people have come up with yeah i mean do you do you feel i don't know if you ever think about when you're writing or or, or the other end where because i suppose in the writing process it's hard to think of whether satire would have an impact on people's actual opinions or, or well views. I, I don't think it does in that okay. i mean i i never make anything thinking oh this will change people's views because mm. i don't think that's going i don't think it's going to happen it might crystallize a thought that you have or it might help you articulate something that's been you know half formed bubbling in your in your head as a as an argument or as a concern but i don't think think it does anything other than that it might confirm something that you've always felt about someone or an argument or something but other than that it's it's entertainment and it's a it's a kind of personal response to what you're seeing around you but it's it's i think i think it's dangerous to think that it's anything bigger than that do you do you find you get more because obviously you're on social media and and the immediacy of the response you can get from that is almost as you've said it someone can tweet you so do you find you get a lot of hate or a lot of support when you say something very rarely get um trolled or uh, i'm trying to think when no it's yeah i've managed to stay out occasionally when i say something about trump I get the old American Trump supporter um, just just tweeting very loudly. <laughs> Lots of capitals. You asshole! You know, that sort of thing. But it, but that's about it, really. It was uh, Phil Jupiter said something that really helped me out with trolls, where he said, just because it's written in the same font as something someone said that's clever yeah. doesn't mean you should take it as seriously. Well, that is the... That is like the big problem with the mm. entire internet in that it all looks official. Yeah. Because it's all typed up. So the comments under a column are given the same critical value as the column. Mm. And you think, no, that's that's just you know, that's you know, that's just some of millions of people out there. <laughs> Yeah. saying something it's not someone whose job it is is to be paid on a weekly basis by a newspaper or journal to come up with a set of arguments on a particular topic but but the problem is i think it's easy to see something just because it's up on a, a web page as you know f- formally important expanding on the idea of does satire actually make any difference i yeah. suppose as you evolve and as you change the person and maybe your political beliefs and and who you are changes yeah i suppose that doesn't that'll have an impact on your writing and how you produce something but i suppose it won't have a necessarily impact on the people that support you so for example um you you got uh knighthood and i was wondering, oh, uh, not knighthood um sorry <laughs> got it wrong way around uh, you got a that would be extraordinary wrong wrong one so you got you got uh, an obe yeah yeah let me do that again <laughs> I'm not. I'm not leaving that in. There's no way I'm leaving that in. No, you've got to. Why? Oh, god, fine. Okay, I'm leaving it in because because you asked. <laughs> Only because you're not laughing. Is Dave, uh, yeah. David um, Schneider will listen to that and go? He's going to say, "I've got a nighthood next." Like, <laughs> he'll just say, "Everyone's got a nighthood. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why not? No, but you, you, got, you, you got an OBE. Yeah. And I wondered whether you felt like that has changed your ability to undermine the establishment or whether it's... No, I mean... Well, I mean, it goes, you keep saying satire, and I've never really regarded myself as a kind of, you know, political satirist in terms of this image that I can see people have, but I just don't think it's true that, that all I'm interested in is undermining the political establishment. I'm really not. I am so fascinated by politics. I love politics. I want people to engage in politics. And I often think in the thick of it, it's actually the minister I feel most sorry for. You know, they're only trying to do so. It's it's the circumstance that they end up in or the pressure put on them by the media and their advisors and, the, you know, Malcolm and, and their own vulnerabilities that pushes them in so i'm not i'm not a kind of all politicians are terrible pieces of work uh, i just don't think that at all in terms of the ob i knew when the letter arrived saying you've been nominated for an OB, do you want i thought just this is either going to be terrible or hilarious i can't decide which and you know part of me said i should just just ignore this another part of me said what happens if i say yes and i just on the day the let's see what happens kind of button just one out and 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 it was kind of it was uh, it was really interesting really and it was an interesting day i, I we had a really good time but it was I, I mean i felt actually quite small when i ended up there because it was like what are you here for oh i saved three men from a you know fire oh okay what were you here for i did some comedy <laughs> <laughs> so i did feel small at time but but that's it, you know. I don't, I don't see it as something that, you know. I, I never use it. I never put it, you know. It's just a. I, it's not I, your I think website. It's not my website, <laughs> <No>. and uh, <laughs> and also, and it's interesting when you talk to other people who come from sort of immigrant families who have received a kind of an honor. It's funny they they have, and I am particularly they're sort of proud of it because you you. The, you grow up, I mean, my parents in particular grew up in a kind of, you know, are we part of the UK? Are we not? Are we separate? Are we? So there, there is something that, it's almost like a piece of paper that you can hold up going, do you see? I'm actually British. Do you see? Do, do you understand now? Which is kind of good. And also I kind of, I do, I do think, you know, I'm happy to accept awards and prizes and on it. I kind of, I, I'm, I'm pleased if the work gets recognition. But what I did think is I can't now stop. 
I've actually got to make things <laughs> even better if I can. <laughs> you know, so that's the kind of the thing that, you know, that does drive you. Definitely. And, yeah. and in terms of, because there's a lot of awards now for like TV and for radio. I know, I know. And it's an endless cycle. It's funny when you do films or when you do American shows, you know, the award season is continuous. Mm. And I don't think there's any other career where you would congratulate yourself so much yeah. for what you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Oh no, I, I wondered if you thought there were too many, but I, it sounds like you think there is. Yeah, there are, there are. And I've kind of stopped going to them now, really, because I, I, there isn't, you know, there's just too much. And I think it's great, actually, when you're starting off and you get that first. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than going to your first awards or going to the BAFTAs for the first time or the Comedy Awards for the first time or when we did Veep, going to the Emmys for the first time or... And you know the Oscars for in the you know it's really fun it's fun but then there comes a point where you think uh, I I remember I remember going to the BAFTAs a couple of years back for the thick of it the last series of thick of it and I was so tired because I just got back from America and I was jet lagged and I felt I I ought to go it'd be churlish not to go but I knew we weren't going to win because we won at the previous you know it just wasn't going to happen but I just thought it'll be it's just be rude to kind of oh, stay at home I'm above all so I went. And I didn't realise that the camera had picked me up looking really morose. <laughs> and I think what they did is when they cut that shot up, when they announced that the winner was, uh, I think it was 20, 2012 or, um, you know, it, it wasn't the thick of it. And somebody said they saw the next day in one of the papers, you know, the award for sorest loser goes to Armani Ducci for this look. And there was a screen grab of me just looking absolutely. And it, all it was, it was I'm just tired. yeah. <laughs> But you've got to always be on at those things because the, I know, and I, I, I know. I mean, that's supposed to come up. I mean, it sounds dreadful. I mean, it's like it's not. You know, talk about first world problems. You know, <laughs> oh, too many awards to go to. It's not that. It's just I think I think they're good for you know really projecting new stuff and bringing new people to attention and good quality work being recognised. I think that's great. I kind of, you know, always happy to, always happy to be nominated, yeah. um, you know, but uh, but you do eventually realise there's just so many of them. And uh, to talk about your management for a second, you're with, you're with PBJ. Yeah. And you've been with them yep. the whole for time? For ages, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right do, do you remember when you signed with them? Do you, how, how old were you when that? Well, I was still at radio, so I was making okay. that kind of, that jump about to go freelance. So, uh, and and they, they looked after Chris Morris, so they kind of knew me and and so it was an easy you know it was an easy thing to to do and they're great they i mean peter bennett jones has been a kind of you know he's done 101 things he looks after all these comedians but he's been running comic relief and all sorts you know and he's um he's also fundamentally decent you know i wanted an agent that wasn't you know having been a producer so i having been in the other side of these phone calls i've seen calls you know controllers pick up a call and and then no controllers channel controller's phone going and, and their assistant saying it's x on the phone and them saying oh god no tell tell i'm not around i didn't want my agent to be that person who provoked that kind of response yeah <laughs> nobody does so no <laughs> and how, how old do you know how old you were when you signed with them i must have been about 26 27 something um, like that I, I mean i could have this completely wrong but i no, think i'm about that well, yeah. when am i i'm only painting the picture a bit yeah, for yeah, people yeah. because now pbj are obviously one of the biggest agents yeah. in the country and i'm imagining back then they were not as big as they were still i mean they looked after ron atkinson and eddie Izzard. Mm-hmm. And you know Chris, Harry Enfield, mm. you know, and and I suppose I suppose as, as as their client base has grown up, they've grown up and yes. stuff. And I just wondered how you'd pick to go with them 
over, or was it, or they, was it just they were offered at the time because they were with Chris, and and so you didn't. Kind it of... just seemed the the right fit, to be honest. And you know, Peter PBJ Management, he he looks after specifically people who create their own work. So Eddie Izzard, Lenny Henry, Tim Minchin, you know, not so they don't have a huge roster of um, sort of actors. It's more people who create their own projects because they find that interesting to do to manage. Yeah. And at this stage in your career where yeah. you are, I don't want to say a banker because it, sorry, not as in like in, in TV terms, as in, oh, right. you know, they, they oh, right. it, yeah. it, it's, it's like, I thought you meant a kind of like a financial kind of, <laughs> I heard myself say it doesn't of, make any uh, sense. Hedge fund kind of. Well, it's, it's like yeah. Will Smith in, in uh, films, you know, they would say, yeah, that you put him in, he's one of the most bankable acts. Right. In that respect. I mean, I would put you down as one of the bankable writers in the country or, or, or producers. Although, I mean, I've never got huge audiences it's sort of you know anything on bbc2 has always been you know it's not been up there with miranda and little britain and you know gavin and stacy it's it's kind of small but enthusiastic did you get more audience on radio than tv i don't know i don't know what figures are on radio actually okay. you, and, and you don't really you don't as a kind of as a habit you don't ask you know whereas in television it was always you know what was the overnights what were the figures how are we doing because mm. television is a bit more ratings driven on radio you're not that you know you're not affected by ratings so much i mean i suppose the whole channel is but but not the individual programs yeah definitely definitely no i was only wondering if and obviously if, if you feel like you need an agent at this stage if you or if they still provide you what they originally provided you if it's or if that's changed oh, as you've... yeah i mean you certainly need management i mean i find uh, especially when you're dealing you know with if you're dealing with like a film studio or if you're dealing with, you know, a network like HBO and and also television is changing so much, it's so fluid and everything is a co-production now anyway. I think you do need someone who, you know, has has a brain for processing whether that's a good thing to be doing and that's a good deal to be had. And also, the, you know, the creative terms of what you want. So there's nothing buried in all of that that means you don't want to have the final say or, you know, you're not expected to do this and that sort of thing. So it's, no, it's utterly invaluable. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And and you've obviously done a lot for the BBC and a lot for uh, commercial stations. Yes. And I wondered whether you've seen uh, a change in the way they commission stuff, especially uh, in the style that you do, whether that's affected you or whether it's just the way that TV's and the, and the audience I, are changing. I think generally commissioning maybe over the last 10 years has got a bit more, you know, risk averse. And therefore, you know, you know I was lucky. The day-to-day -day was basically Alan Yentob saying, yeah, I like that. Let's do it. Even the thick of it was Rolly Keating at BBC Four when it just started saying, I like that idea. We don't have very much money. What can you do for this amount of money? I think I may be wrong, but I, I get the feeling it's a little bit more... Comedy is expensive. That's the thing. You know, it is expensive. It's expensive to pay for writing. It's expensive to pay for actors, sets, production. It's a big number. So therefore, if it doesn't get an audience, technically, <laughs> officially, you've wasted a lot of money. Mm. So therefore people who decide what should go on and what should be commissioned, you know, even though they want to make good stuff, there is part of them thinking, but I mustn't get this wrong. And, oh dear, that slightly concerns me. Maybe I should ask for another rewrite on that before we come to a decision. Or maybe I should just put it to one side for six months and then see what else we're making before I come back to that, you know. So I've, I, I feel that that process of getting stuff on is, is a little bit slower and a bit harder. Just as, actually, British television is now having to compete with, 
you know, Amazons and your Netflix and, you know, an American TV, HBO and so on, which we can now access at any time. You know, it's not like we can't now watch American TV. Yes, we can. Mm. You know, we can very easily watch it. So they're part of uh, the British viewing culture. And, you know, my experience at HBO was the opposite. It was very much, okay, we like this idea. We want to make it. You're in charge. Let's make it. Very little interference, which was the sort of the BBC approach 15 years ago. And, you know, they've taken that model from the BBC and said, that's how we'll make stuff that's a bit different. Um, do, yeah. you, do you think there are any stuff that you made 15 or 20 years ago that wouldn't get made now? Well, you know, the day to day, I wonder, I wonder what whether that would quite have that tone, you know. Friday Night Armistice was a, you know, it was a big budget production. And we were allowed to just run around at the BBC, use other TV programmes to re-edit. And, you know, now it's just compliance and copyright and that department shut down. There are no costumes anymore. So you can't, you know. We had this thing called Hunt the Old Woman in which we put an old woman in other TV shows live. So she would turn up on Top of the Pops in the background. And you could only do that because you were in the same building as all those other shows. But now everything's sort of um, fragmented. That would be difficult. But then what you would do is you would come up with a new show in the, in in today's television yeah. rather than think about the whether the old show would get shown now. You'd work around the limitations. Yeah, yeah definitely. And that's part yeah. of the fun and the challenge. Yeah, and it's also why people now do stuff on virally and YouTube and, and whatever as another way of getting stuff done. Yeah, definitely. And and obviously you've you've collaborated with loads of what what are now very big uh, mm. names, mm. but obviously when you all started out, you were all just starting yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did how did you go about picking the people that? Well, you... it was the show really. It was on the hour, and I wanted just lots of people who could act, who could do lots of characters, but who could be who could perform nat- naturalistically, do a little bit of improvising, so that it sounded real. So uh, I knew Rebecca Front. And in fact, as a radio producer, I'd done some shows with her on other stuff. I'd heard about Steve, so I watched Steve's stuff, got in touch with Steve. I heard Chris Morris on the radio doing exactly what it was I was hoping to do, so just got in touch with him. So they were all assembled for that show. So um, in my head, I had news team assembled. News team, yeah, <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't like we all, you know, were a group of people at the same university or the same drama school or whatever and had and had done our stuff it's just we all came together for that show and then we all hit it off and therefore you know peter bainham was one of the writers on the in the radio corridor at bbc radio so he then came on board as one of the writers Leon herring i knew not just from university but you know then doing weekending and, and doing some more radio stuff with them so it kind of all came together for that show and then you know and then after the day today different combinations of those people have have done other things because obviously you said before where you were learning how to do stuff basically on the on the fly as you were doing it yeah and i was told that when you were doing the in the thick of it yeah um, you did some scenes were shot in multicam in two takes yes where you would do one scripted and one improvised and i wondered if that's a technique that you you did just because you were trying it out or whether it's when you recommended and you always thought would work well it was i i we used to do a little bit in things like the day-to-day and any party stuff we always used to do little improvised rehearsals so we'd write the script but then workshop them in a little downstairs basement at Talkback and and on the basis of what came up in the improvisation that would then get fed back into the script and then when we were doing Iron Man and Partridge we'd write the script and it'd be very heavily structured script for each episode but we'd then spend a week in rehearsals with the hotel all laid out and his bedroom and the you know and, and we'd s- s- muck about basically with each scene just to see what else came up 
and then that got fed into the script. So the thick of it was really an extension of that. It was it was very much okay. We haven't got a week to rehearse every episode. You know, it's really low budget. Let's get two cameras in. The lighting lit everywhere, so we can run around. We did. We'd spend a couple of days on each script, improvising in rehearsals. But on set, because the cast were then comfortable with that technique, we'd shoot the script, and then if there was time, I'd say, okay, let's shoot it again, but just slightly loosen it up too, just to kind of dirty it up, just to make it sound like it's natural, the natural rhythms of speech, people speaking over each other, not quite finishing the sentences, you know, that sort of the stuttering, uh, 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 what you know. And, and we do that. Or if I felt, actually, now I hear the script back, that, that beat there isn't clear. So could you just talk about that bit for a, for a while just to see if it comes out a bit more? So that's that's what we do. And because there were always two cameras filming it, it meant in the edit I could, could easily cut it because every... I mean, there's nothing worse than somebody improvising something. And then you say, could you improvise it all again? But this yeah. time we're going to do it in a tighter shot. Yeah. So we've got it on two sizes. So I can, if I need to chop it down, because naturally improvisation is always longer. So I need to try and cut it down and just get to the best bits. Having two cameras always shooting it meant that I've always got that, the ability to edit around anything. So that's what, so the, the technique is really there for the show. The show, for each show, you ask yourself, what is the best way, the most effective way to make this show? And I thought for the thick of it, it would be like this. And I suppose, like you said, or like you implied, a lot of the stuff that you do, or a lot of stuff the projects you do, you do for a certain period of time and then obviously get yeah. annoyed with it or bored with it and you're sort yeah. of like, I'm done with this. Yeah. Well, I'm just scared of it going off. Do you mean going off the boil? Yeah. So I'd rather, if I got it to a point where I'm really, really happy with it, I, I always think, right, that's where I should stop now. Yeah. Do you think, because there's a lot of people who, who debate this point or, whether, mm. or they have different opinions, and I'd love to know what you think of whether comedy is of its time or whether it can be timeless essentially and, and be resurrected I think it's very difficult to know really some things are and some things aren't I watched Doctor Strangelove recently which I've always been big in you know and it was really slow <laughs> it was really slow uh, and yeah I watched The Great Dictator Charlie Chaplin's movie but Hitler fantastic so it's very very difficult to know really very difficult I suppose if you were to bring back a programme any you know if, yeah. you, if you pick a programme you know the Amandia Marucci show yeah. or, or Time Trumpet or whatever yeah. I suppose if you were to bring it back it would be first of all is it something we can keep fresh and yes. not drive you mad and second of all is there actually somebody who'd want to watch it yeah would that be your how or would you just go away and be like can i can i, or, or, I, I never i never really think about that you, you do have to think about it more when you're making films because you know they cost millions and somebody's wants you, you're going to have to try and persuade someone to give you that money so they'll always be thinking okay what's the audience but i don't think you can ever i never write something for for a specific audience. I write something for what I think is funny or feels different or feels unusual. I hope that other people will feel the same. You know, I'm I'm kind of wagering that enough people will feel the same, but I'm not going out sort of road testing it. So when you start a new project, say say you've yeah. had an idea in your head yeah. right now, would it be a case of you'd get up tomorrow and just be like, nine, five, I'm going to write? Or is it a case of you let it organically happen? It's sort of builds And also I do some, I do an awful lot very collaboratively. It's very rarely that I'm sitting down on my own writing something. Usually it's two or three people in a room and we're you know we're bashing ideas around and I might ask them to go 
away and just very quickly put it all down and then we'll meet up and I'll go through it kind of line by line and you know it's it's always stays fluid like that really and moving stuff from from uh, one medium to another is obviously yeah. always a challenge and it's something you've yeah. done really well over different things and working with uh, Kevin Daly and, and Mark Thomas on, on Loose Talk oh Kevin Day yeah sorry yeah. Kevin, sorry, Kevin Day yeah. um, doing that again. no right. keep that in <laughs> should we just keep in all my fuck up and, and we'll edit it to your no, no, you, no it's fine no we'll keep it in to be fair there'll be a percentage in this audience who won't know that that was a fuck up so we'll be fine okay. and they were talking about how moving moving loose talk from radio to TV wouldn't work mm. and do you do you think that's do you think everything could essentially be moved if it had enough time and effort and thought to enough it time and effort I mean they did try it on television and it, it sort of didn't quite take off it had, I mean it ran for one series late at night and wasn't recommissioned uh, I mean it's it, yeah no no. I've, I, never, I mean they've tried for decades to try and put just a minute on the television and it's never worked <laughs> or even I'm sorry having a clue you know I think things are just meant to be as they are and why tamper with them really yeah some things and some you things know. yeah and have there been any TV or radio projects that you've turned down rejected or just not done because you because you've had to walk away and said you know they won't let me do it the way I wanted to that you've regretted uh, yes I'm just trying to think what? Yeah, it's it's usually things like there just hasn't been time. You know, you, you you make something and then you realize you have to make it for four years. So there hasn't been time for that other thing that you wanted to make. You know, I would have liked to have done more Time Trumpet. I would like to have done more Amanda Nucci shows. But, you know, the thick of it was happening at the same time. And then In the Loop and Veep happened. And, and Time Trumpet, the Amanda Nucci shows were hugely time consuming. You know, they both took about a year and a half to make one set of six each. So, so it was things like that where you just think, oh, I wish, I wish we could have gone back and done a bit more I mean we only made one series of the day to day and it would have been nice to have done a, a second series we did talk about it at one point and you know we, we were getting into it and then you know things happened you know Steve's doing this and Patrick's doing that and Chris has got this thing you know and I've got that and you know and it, before you know it four years have gone by it's quite pleasing that something like Alan Partridge has sustained and I think it's only because we only do Alan every four or five years yeah <laughs> you know? and I, sp- I suppose that's you guys keeping it fresh for you but also the audience yeah and we've kind of grown older as he's grown older really yeah, yeah yeah definitely and and i suppose uh, th- i mean this is this is the weird one for me it's like mm. as as performers and writers get older they and they establish an audience base or they establish mm. a career some of them say there's a lot of freedom in that because you know you, you have an audience and you have a certain bank of of um i keep talking about banking you're probably looking at me going am i wearing the wrong shirt no you know they've got a bank of uh you know shows in the, in the, in yeah. the locker that they can say look i can do it kind of yeah, thing. yeah. but then some of them say that there's less risk you can take because obviously your audience wants a certain thing from you or, or yeah and I'm also very aware of you know every three or four years there's a whole new generation of viewers who don't know who you are or who are you know who, who you know who maybe have seen the last thing you did but aren't aware of a thing you did 10 or 15 years ago I'm very aware of that how quickly so I, I feel you have to keep sort of renewing your um contact with the audience because yeah. it's very easy for, for for me anyway to get into my own little bubble and worry that you know the thing yeah. I'm writing now isn't as good as the last thing or whatever but I suppose if you kind of know there's a new audience every three or four years I mean I'm not writing every new thing for the new audience <laughs> no, no, but, no. but 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 I, but I I think it's part of that thing of I don't want to keep doing the one show or the one thing 
But, and, and maybe subconsciously, you're also aware that actually, well, that thing, you know, the thick of it, when was the last thick of it? It was about three or four years ago. There's probably a lot of people who are into comedy now who, who don't know what the thick of it is, you know? So you're actually starting afresh. When I come up with a new thing, you, you're kind of introducing yourself for the first time to a lot of people. Do you find having back catalogue of, I've heard the word back, back. do you find a back catalogue of, of work ever causes you like writer's block when you're going to start a project because you're sort of like... No, I'm not aware of it. No, I'm not aware okay. of it. No, I... I I, I think it's nice to have it and I, I kind of like the variety of it but uh, I'm not I'm not thinking you know when we start something I never think well this has got to be as good as you know X I, I just think this has got to be good if it's not good you know if, if I'm putting my name to it and I'm putting the work in I just I want to be pleased with it I don't want to be embarrassed by it you know and that's you know it's a perennial kind of paranoia that, <laughs> that drives you yeah. <laughs> which is oh my god this mustn't be shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think everyone listening to this can relate to that regardless of what they do and it's it's uh, and like you said you're on you're on social media and, mm. and, and you're active on that how would you describe not as much as I used to be I think when I started on Twitter I was kind of like did three or four a day now I kind of I think a lot of people will say this you, you kind of forget after a while, after you've done it for four or five years you you kind of go through whole days thinking oh I didn't I didn't really look at Twitter I didn't you know I think that's their problem I think they don't quite know how to you know expand it or monetize it without turning it into something that nobody wants it to be yeah, an advertising platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just people don't want that, yeah. you know. And you've only got 140 characters, so you don't want to fill that with adverts. No. I still get that thing of like, hey, I had a really great Nescafe this morning. What? Why is, you know, paid, paid, paid content, you know. Do you remember somebody, somebody saying, was it Heathrow Airport? Heathrow Airport would love you to tweet happy birthday Heathrow Airport. They'll pay you. You realise that now they should pay you. For because I've just said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to beep it. It can be boom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just thought, well, why? But what will people reading my tweets think of me going, I don't hey, <laughs> happy birthday Heathrow Airport. That's, <laughs> as someone who I, I write for those kind yeah. of brands and what they want is they just want the acknowledgement that people now know they're on social media so they might follow and they might take right. an interest in it however you know I, I got on my suggestions you know it suggests like who can follow yeah. I had Donald Trump on there recently which okay. scared me yeah. and made me reconsider a lot of things and then I had Charmin Toilet Roll now yeah. I can't think of a, a yeah. chain of events that would make yeah. me want to follow Charmin on a, I should get a sponsorship yeah. at this point but, but, <laughs> but, but there is, you can see the connection with Trump yeah, yeah. Toilet, so, you know. <laughs> so the algorithms had sort of done their work it's in one work. you know yeah. One level, yeah. Oh, for definite, for definite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do do you ever like do you engage with things like YouTube? Do you ever like watch or like look for new talent or anything like that? On I do. I mean, my kids point stuff my way. Okay. <laughs> Usually, Kane Peel, but uh, right. you know, <laughs> or um, uh, what's that um, oh, guy who did Community? The the uh, cartoon. Dan Harmon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Rick and Morty. The Rick and Morty. Rick and oh, okay. Morty. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I thought the, the guy... Sassy Trump. I've been recommending Sassy Trump Sassy to people. Trump. Peter Serovinovich just revoicing Donald Trump. Really? That sounds funny. Yeah. Cinematic. It's Peter's very funny. Best voice. Yeah, it's very funny. It's unedited. Right. He just revoiced him. So he's very... Uh, you know, I'm going to build a... I'm going to build a wall. Oh, this fella. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Look at the size of him. You know, it's just yeah. really... Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I uh, the the vlogger I'm watching a lot at the moment is called Casey Neinstadt, and he mm -hmm. told me the reason he started was because he got a show on HBO and he did really well with it, but his kids were uh, like he, got, he put his kid in it at one point, and he said, yeah. "Don't you be embarrassed when I edit it." And he put you in it, and his his son went, "My 
friends don't watch that they watch YouTube and yeah. so and so he thought well one minute I need the new base I of audience I knew I need a new when we, when we did our, when we did Mid Morning Matters mm. and it went up on YouTube I was yeah. suddenly I was very cool with my son's <laughs> kind of friends because I made original content for YouTube but that was that you was know. that was Foster sponsored wasn't it Foster sponsored it yeah and then yeah. so they had it on their webpage for a bit and then you know after whatever it is 30 days or something yeah. it just goes up on YouTube yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no I, f I found that really an interesting move because obviously Alan is not meant to be like not meant to not be successful but he's not meant to be the 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 He's, he's, he's meant to be this DJ who's yeah. who sort of always thinks he's better than he is and he's yeah. sort of never really and yet now he's on a platform that to me doesn't I, I at the time when I heard he was going to do it I was because it did a chortle article and I was like yeah. how are they going to put him on YouTube because yeah. it doesn't feel like he should be on YouTube yeah. and I suppose I mean was that your original plan or was it like it a, was we kind of wanted to get back and do some more Alan and we wanted to you know really work harder and, and, and then just let it slip out and see what happened mm. because and they, I mean that was what but four or five years ago now, I suppose. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, the original content wasn't huge at, at that time. It was just beginning to establish mm. itself as a, a kind of outlet. And I think Steve and I, we just thought, could be terrible, could be a disaster. We could put all this work into it and nobody sees it. Or, you know, and I just thought, well, let, let's try it. As long as we're happy with what we've made, mm. let's just put it out there and, and see what happens. Would you would you do any more YouTube-based content like that again? Or did you find... Yeah, it depends what it is, though. Yeah. But, but you know, it, it yeah, and it, it was great fun. But, I'm not, I'm but not... we were lucky because, you know, he was a known commodity. Yeah. So we were able to, and Foster's paid. So we, we were paid properly to make it mm. and we had the results to make it and all that you know which is different from someone just starting and it's an unknown yeah. and you know I'm asking more if yeah. you like the medium itself rather than yeah 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 and and you know one of the things that I regret I never quite got around to doing was that idea of doing something where you're just making little things and just putting them out there and you know still time there still is you know people are very good at doing that sort of thing. you know Adam Buxton does it and yeah, yeah, Peter yeah. does it and sort of you know I just haven't had a chance to kind of and then you realize actually it's not as simple as that you know you've got to keep updating you've got yeah. to keep refreshing you can't just put something out and have it up there for like months on end mm. you know people get annoyed if there's nothing yeah. new there so you've got to you know but, but your your career I, I don't want to say path because like you said you didn't really have a plan but your mm. career history mm. is doing so many different things in so many different mediums mm. that I mean do you think it would have been viable for you to just have been and I don't want to say it like mm. just as in just but for you to just do radio producing no I mean I, I didn't plan to go into television I mean it, it kind of happened because on the hour and Alan Partridge just you know gained this sort of critical momentum but I imagine I would have started getting fidgety after a while after four or five years of radio I would have wanted to do something else and I also like writing and I like you know journalism and stuff like that so I I get I get you know I have a kind of I'm always slightly thinking you know I'm enjoying the project but I'm always thinking what, what can I do that's different from this yeah <laughs> totally know? totally yeah totally. um these are the last quick fire questions yeah so they're quick fire for me but you take as long as you like to answer them so I ask every guest these um what are the best books on comedy writing or stand-up that you've ever read oh heavens I'm not sure I've read that many to be honest <laughs> <laughs> not even David's as, how, how to write everything. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I love I love I love comedy comic writing. I love Woody mm. Allen's pieces from the New Yorker. Okay. Side effects and uh, without feathers. That's what I think. That's where you learn, really. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Mm. Oh, that's still the still yeah, same counts, answer that counts. Yeah. And I keep this deliberately ambiguous, by the mm. way. What is the best show you've ever seen? 
it's a toss up between Father Ted and Larry Sanders show. Okay. Um this this was a, a submitted one, I should yes. point this out. This is not the one I normally ask everyone. Yeah, and the and the up, updated Battlestar Galactica. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um yeah, so I don't normally ask everyone this question because okay. that would be weird. Uh what is your favorite episode of On the Hour slash the day today slash brass eye? And do you have a favourite reporter name? <laughs> um Iggy Pop Barker. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and is there a uh uh, you see, I think the first episode of On the Hour because it had a train crash thing in it, and it had, and it was just new. And and as we were making it, we felt it was new. And I'm literally seeing Chortle go, Amando loves train crashes. Uh, <laughs> and and we knew it was like in terms of subject matter for a Radio Four comedy, it was wrong. You know, it was making fun of people being injured in horrible. You know, there was something about it, but also the other new aspects of the show i kind of you know as we were making it we're thinking no idea what kind of an audience yeah but i we think this is kind of a bit different so i suppose that that would be my favorite what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it biggest mistake i ever made was probably well i i, I think it's when I, I accepted a bbc job <laughs> <laughs> when i went into bbc management but i quickly overcame it by leaving <laughs> Good way uh, of overcoming your job. I also, as I was in my last year, I was given a pilot to make called Le Euro Quiz, which was a quiz about Europe. Europe, And you can't make Europe entertaining. And I thought, and I was still a staff producer then, I thought, what I'll do is I'll make this pilot badly. Not so bad that they'll think I'm a terrible producer, but bad enough for them to think this idea won't work. We won't commission it as a series. And the mistake I made was I didn't make it bad enough. <laughs> So they said, we're not sure about this. Can you make another one? Right. So I then found myself having to do another pilot for Le Euro Quiz. But this time I knew I was leaving. Right. So I, I just thought I'm going to make the worst, the just the shittest radio pilot that's ever been made. And it was a terrible. <laughs> the questions were all obscure. The guests were chosen for their inability to be entertaining. Uh, it was uh, we didn't publicize it so there were about 12 people in the hall it was bleak and i loved it i had a marvelous <laughs> evening because I, I knew i was just leaving that world of bleak just not good enough kind of <laughs> quizzes i mean it was appalling people who worked on it were traumatized by how bad it was. but i so enjoyed just seeing that whole world go go down a, a, a sinkhole yeah i can imagine it's uh some men just want to watch the world burn kind of mentality yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 it was very nice what do you think are the most common misconceptions people have about what you do well like it's you know it's it's two fingers to politicians hey you know subversive <laughs> kind of you know and i don't see myself as as that really at all i i like kind of funny things and you know silly stupid stuff as well really you know so but but you know I, I understand how people have that view. You know, they, I'm always quoted this hard man of satire kind of thing that was written somewhere about 20 years ago. You know, I just think, well, I'm, I don't really feel that. And, and neither do I feel that's what, what I'm doing, really. I'm just making some f funny, hopefully interesting things, you know, for my own personal amusement. Yeah, and then just sharing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry? Oh, oh that's interesting. Jeez, I've now got to think about the industry. 
Well, it could be, it could be as in yeah. like a BBC industry type yeah, person, yeah, 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 or it could be yeah. an actual, you know, like a writer type. Well, I tell you, it's not underrated, but he got a lot of flack recently, and I've mentioned it before is Alan Yentob, who's actually a great creative. You know, he's actually part of what made the BBC very magical in that he would be around, going, "Hey, that's good. Let's do that." You know, I'll I'll make sure you can do it. When I had uh, stuff for Channel Four, and I'd finished doing that, and I knew I wanted to go back to the BBC, Alan was very instrumental in just getting resources together so i had my own little mini department where we made stuff and that's where we made the thick of it and time trumpet and mm. started comedy vehicles Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle, you know and things like that which i did for about four or five years there um but i didn't feel like i was bbc staff i felt like i was an indie but within the bbc within, yeah. you know and he was good at that and i always i think people like that you know he he, he for some reason he attracts this kind of you know especially from the the press who are anti bbc he's he's a kind of target for them and you know a lot of people testify to the lot of the supportive work he 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 did and still does just as encouraging people what do you think is the biggest problem in the comedy industry and how would you go about solving it Oh Lord! I mean, there's lots of it. Okay. There what really do you is. Problems. <laughs> I mean, you say comedy industry, and you know the clues in the title, industry. It, right. it, it You know, it's 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 become this serious thing, and you know, it has been for a while, and and that makes it very competitive. And you know, comedy should be fun. It shouldn't. You should enjoy it. Should. You should enjoy it. Yeah. You know. So I don't know what the solution is. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Solution is get day jobs and not worry about the Yeah, money. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just see it as not a job, even though it is. But to yeah. try and tell yourself it isn't. Oh definitely, definitely. Yeah. When you look back over your career, what memory makes you most happy? Oh, career. Jesus. Like when you look over over the last <laughs> forty years, what, what's <laughs> memory? You don't want to call it a career. Career. Well you see, I this is a recent one. I've just finished doing The Death of Stalin, this film, and Michael Palin plays Molotov in it. And I really, and there's lots of great cast in it, Steve Buscemi and, you know, but I really, really enjoyed working with Michael Palin, who's just one of my, you know, all-time comedy heroes, who turns out to be as talented and as amazing and as nice as you hoped he would be. And, and, and who is funny and who is just great to work with. It was, you know, it was great. What is the most interesting thing you do that nobody ever gets to see? <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> um, why is that on funny? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm into astronomy, but not okay. in a huge way. It's not like I'm out at four in the morning staring at stars. But I like that. I don't okay. know music, classical music. I really that's hey, that's the that's the thing I can plug and bring up. Oh, go ahead. Out. Yeah, sorry. All my writing about classical music for the last Re- really smooth fifteen away, years is coming out next year. The, do you have a name for it? I yet? don't have a name for it yet. Okay, right. Maybe well, we should crowdsource the name. Okay, well, I'll tell yeah. you what. If you, if you have any suggestions of the name. Yeah. Tweet, what's your Twitter handle again? It's at A Yanucci. Right, tweet A Yanucci yes. uh, and hashtag it book title suggestion. Actually, that's a shit hashtag. Music it? book title suggestion. Although yeah. those, that's most of your 140 letters gone. That's more, how about we yeah. just do um, ATI book name suggestions? Fine. Oh, is that too, that is sounds that too long? like is that cold. Longer? Yeah, because yeah. that's the industry. So, oh, yeah. fine, oh fine. I see, right. All right fine. Got let's you, let's yeah. just stick with the thing. Okay, okay. so hashtag music book title <laughs> Do you know what I love is if this trends, <laughs> and people start like naming books. Can we compress it? Mitel. Mitel. How do you spell that? Mitel. I don't even know how you spell that. M-I-T-L-E. Mitel. M-I-T-L-E. Yeah. Right. So you Mitel. tweet him hashtag M-I-T-L-E. Yeah. Any suggestions you have for what would be a 
book that would encompass the last 15 years of you writing about music? Yes. Okay. And any, are you a favor of a pun in a book title or anything like that? No. Okay, so no puns. <laughs> no. Any, any, any hints as to what you might enjoy in a book title? <laughs> <laughs> Just so people can get some good ideas. Uh, 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 what, something like I Got Rhythm, something like that. I Got Rhythm, okay. Rhythm Method, there you go, There's, there you go. So not that. They're not that. <laughs> Not that. Right. Here's, that's base camp well, in terms go, of, you know. There goes both my ideas. Right? <laughs> the quality threshold. Okay. Is, it has to be high. That stuff set the bar really low there. What I'll do is yeah. I will link to the page on Amazon that has all your books. Okay. So that people can just click yet. through yeah. in the future. Yeah, fine. And they can find yeah. it. Okay. Um, this is a two-part. One day Amazon will have drones that deliver me these books that I haven't written. <laughs> <laughs> bring you a script and go sign there it. you go yeah. yeah right this is the last our case. algorithms thought you would come up with this yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Um, we've looked at your past tweets <laughs> and yes. worked it out right this is the if you wrote that then you definitely will have written this <laughs> um. oh man um, this is this is the last question it's a sort okay. of split two-parter but it's um, what is the best bit of advice you've ever been given and if you could go back to your past self when you yes. were first starting out and give yourself one bit of advice, what would it have been? Uh, right. First, best bit of advice was something Paul Merton said when I, w- I met him very early on doing a Have I Got News For You? And he said, writing, it's what I said earlier, actually, is like, if, if you're starting off writing, keep writing. Don't stop. Don't wait for someone to ask you to write something. Keep writing, because the more you write, the better you'll get. Okay. That's the, piece of, uh, that's the bit of advice I always pass on. Mm-hmm. A bit of advice to to me starting. Yeah, so if you went back to your past self... I think you? not come across as being so arrogant and <laughs> actually genuinely thank people for, you know, their words of advice and for the meeting that they've had with you. Did you not, did you not thank Paul for that bit of advice? No, I did thank oh, Paul, okay, but, right. but I'm just thinking of like... I remember John Lloyd, who's a great comedy hero of mine because, you know, he did not like that news, spitting image, Blackadder. And he... Uh, when we were making the day-to-day, he kind of just out of sheer, you know, wanted it to be good, came in and chatted to us about his experience. And I think, because he then said this afterwards, I think Chris and I must have been looking at him as if to as if to say, who the fuck do you think you are coming to tell? And that wasn't what we were thinking. We were thinking, oh my God, that's John Lloyd. Mm. Um, <laughs> But he told us afterwards, oh, I thought you were, I mean, I came in to let you know what I thought, but I I sort of got the feeling that you didn't want me there. Mm. And I'm thinking, no. Mm. So my advice to my younger self would be to kind of just, you know, the the visual signals I'm giving off could could have been a lot better. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Armando. I have to say that I want to say something quickly before I recap the episode. As more high-profiling guests come on the show, it's amazing to see who says yes and who says no. And I've got nothing against anyone who says no. I get it. We're all living busy lives and sometimes you just have to turn stuff down. I have to turn stuff down sometimes and it's it's a pain, but it's just a fact of life. You can't do everything because you've only got a limited amount of time on this planet. So I get it. But it's a testament to the famous people or the people who are becoming more famous, who are coming on either now who've been recorded or our future guests in the pipeline who ask questions about the show before coming on such as how active is the community what do they want to know how can I help rather than questions I sometimes get from PRs or I sometimes get from uh, people who have an agenda they're trying to push which is essentially just reach for a product they're trying to sell and that is what are your download numbers which are publicly available anyway 
anyway. So anyone who has access to Google, which you would have to if you contacted me anyway, could find those numbers out. So by asking me, it seems, first of all, like you haven't done your research, but it just seems mad to me that that's the vanity number they want to focus on. So I'm self-selecting and, and I, don't, I don't want to bash anyone or any company that's approached me on behalf of someone because that's not fair and I know that it's their job and I know that that's just the way they want to run their work and stuff. I just think it's really interesting how people approach podcasters versus how they might approach someone on quote-unquote mainstream radio. And as this continues to be part of my work and my job as a performer, and the reason it continues to be great and enjoyable and lovely is because of the amazing, open and humble guests who come on because they want to improve the industry by imparting their knowledge. Those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with and given both myself and Armando both believe that you're the average of the five people you hang out with most and the content you produce has a massive impact on you and the way that you turn out. I think it's a good way to continue this project by self-selecting the right people for the project that I want to put out there that represents me and what I'm trying to do and as a result self-selecting the audience for it who want to learn and grow no matter what their relationship is with comedy whether they be an audience member, a promoter, a booker, a TV commissioner, a, 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 an act, just a fanatical lover of comedy, whatever you may be, thank you for listening. It means the world and I hope that this gives you a lot of value. I spoke to him off mic after the podcast for a bit and he said, seriously, if you've got any book titles, do tweet him uh, using the hashtag MITLE. That's M-I-T-L-E. Quickly write that down. M-I-T-L-E. You know, you can find his and my Twitter handle by just searching the internet or you can go to the show notes which are linked in the description. Send him in some example titles. They can be sarcastic. They can be genuine. He hasn't got a title for it yet and as he said in the podcast, he hasn't really got anything to promote in this one. The book's not out till next year. It's not like a useful promotional tool for him. So if you if you just enjoyed this and you don't have a book title suggestion but you just want to say thank you, please do send him a tweet and say thank you. And that goes for all the previous guests. All of them have given up their time and their effort to help us. So take a minute at the end of this podcast and do me a favor just to help the podcast grow and also just do something nice for the world. Just just push some love out there. Push some good vibes into the universe by thanking someone who was on an episode that you particularly enjoyed. As always, you should subscribe. As always, you should subscribe because I do three new pods a month. Please rate it in iTunes. We've been sat on 54 ratings for a while now and I really want to get it over 60 by the end of the second year, which is happening in a few weeks. Can't believe we're nearly two. It's flown by, believe me, way too quickly. So if you can help with that, that'd be amazing. Also, please share this episode or any episode that you've enjoyed with someone that you think will get some value out of it. A lot of work goes into these shows. I lose about a day and a half to each of them between contacting the guests for the first time, recording it, editing it, uploading it, promoting it. Just the whole process takes me probably 18 hours for every episode. So that will help me and help the show immensely. If you can support the show, please do. If you want to become a patron going into year two, please do. You can do that from $1 an episode. That's 80p if you your English and you and you, I should point out you can cap that so if you can only afford two dollars a month sorry it's in dollars because it's an American website so if you can only afford two dollars a month you can set it and say I don't want to ever spend more than two dollars a month on podcasts and I won't get more than two but that helps every little bit helps if my regular listenership all donated one dollar per episode I would be breaking even on the time that this takes on the effort it takes on the equipment maintenance on just all of it if you all donated one dollar so don't think if you sit in 
there going, mm, it's going to make me look a bit stingy just sending $1. It won't, because if everyone did it, that's the power of the crowd, and it really helps out. And it, and it really helps me out, because it means that I have a budget for the future of the show. So if you can afford, don't do it if you can't afford it, but if you can afford it, please do become a patron from a dollar a show. Remember, I only do three episodes a month, so that's $3 or £2.40, assuming the Brexit leave doesn't screw up the exchange rate anymore. So please do. If you, if you don't want to do that, by the way, you can do a one-off donation. Again, don't feel like whatever you're sending is too small. Every little bit helps. You can do that on PayPal on my website, or you can give me cash at a gig. A couple of people have done that because they said they didn't want to pay online or they don't know how to, which is fine. And that's an option. I really don't mind. Just look me up on my website. There's a gig list there. If I'm coming to your town, come down. And even if you can't come to the gig, just tell me you want to meet outside, like some sort of backstreet drug deal. <laughs> just sort of slip me 10 pound, 50 pound, five pound, whatever you can afford, slip me that, right? Also, my book's about to go on sale. Kindle haven't given me a specific date, but it is all signed off. So if you bought a copy, you should be getting it any day now if you were part of the crowdfunding. Thank you a billion for taking part in that. That really helped with that whole process. It should be with some people by this point. So if it isn't, just give it a few more days. It should be with you very, very soon. I'm sorry about delay. Been a buck up at Kindle's end, which I know sounds like I'm passing the buck, but I can show you the information. It's so annoying. They're just, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write a blog post about how to publish books or self-publish books soon. So you'll be able to see that and see why that, why Kindle are not the most efficient than they should be. So if you would like a copy of How to Make a Living by Working for Free, an artist's guide to building an audience through free content online, and then how to get that audience to support you if it is something they value, please go to my website and buy a copy for £5 digitally or £8 in paperback plus posts and packaging. All the information on the website. This next bit makes me feel a little uneasy because, okay, very quick story time. I was in Edinburgh in August, as a lot of us were, and I got chatting to a group of comedians who are all fans of the podcast in various capacities. Some are dedicated listeners who've heard every episode. Some have picked and choose what they want because it helps them. And that's fine either way because that's the idea of this. It's kind of a choose your own comedy industry adventure. But one of them said, how do you juggle admin as in booking your live stuff and podcasting given the amount of time it takes you to do? And I honestly said, sometimes it takes a hit and sometimes I have to get ahead of myself to catch up with admin and vice versa. And sometimes I just sleep less because I need an extra couple of hours to do that. This is not a sub story, by the way. This is not like, please pity me. But one of them said, well, a lot of industry listen to your podcast. Why don't you ask if any of them want to book you? <laughs> because there's probably some of them listening who like what you're doing, maybe have looked you up online and you just haven't contacted them and they don't know that you would like to gig for them but just haven't emailed in yet. That's what I'm doing now. I feel slightly uncomfortable about doing this but it's been two months or three months since Edinburgh and it's been fermenting in the back of my mind and I sort of thought, you know what, let's try it and see. So if you are someone who runs a gig or if you are someone who knows someone who runs a gig and you would like to help me out admin wise and you would like to contact me for booking me I can send you through all the details you might need I've got quotes I've got competition credits for awards I've come close to winning and I've got videos of me performing hours tens twenties whatever whatever you need to see so if you're interested in booking me for paid and progression work I'd love to hear from you if you aren't but you just want to say thank you for the episode you can tweet me or Facebook me and that would be very greatly appreciated as well thank Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting. Thank you very much for donating if you do. I will see you all in about 10 days time. Bye. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.